your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and most of the time, I talk generally about comics, movies, and TV shows. But now and then, I take periodic breaks to talk specifically about Smallville. You see, when I first launched this podcast, I'd set aside every eighth episode to talk about Star Wars, but that got kind of old after a while. Plus, it felt a little too similar to what the two true freaks do with their Star Wars Monthly Monday. Now, I didn't think a whole lot about that at the time, but it it was a consideration when I finally made the decision to delete my Star Wars Weekend podcast from my format. Well, Something had to fill the void, and I'd made a lot of hay in my very first show defending Smallville from a lot of baseless attacks and gripes from people who, honestly, who ought to know better. Now, I started thinking maybe I could half-ass continue that by analyzing Smallville. Not just defending it, you understand, but... I don't know, just talking about all the shit about the show that that I love and just cherish over the years. Now, originally, I had this wacky idea that I could do a commentary for every episode. But that's something like in excess of 215 uh, episodes of Smallville, which means in excess of 215 commentaries. Even I don't have time for that. Besides, I'd probably end up dead just from stress and anxiety. I'd have an aneurysm or something. If I had to talk about every single episode from the dreaded season four, one at a time. So, I mean, let's try to be reasonable here, you know? Anyway, so these little retrospectives, though, seem like a pretty good compromise. I could talk about a handful of Smallville episodes at a stretch as I work my way through each season. So... There's more than enough shit here to last for several years' worth of shows uh, or episodes of my podcast, or at least as I've paced it out. And on the whole, it just seemed like a really good alternative. So, so yeah, and in case it wasn't obvious, the idea here, the high concept, is, to, is among other things, to tie subsequent goings-on in later seasons back to what's come before as I go through everything, you know? So, if you're concerned that 
something that happens in season six that relates to something that was originally established in season two, for example, might get lost. You got nothing to worry about, dude. I got it under control. <clears throat> anyway, to get down to brass tacks, though, last time I finished my remarks after recapping Smallville season two, episode eight, Ryan. That can mean only one thing. It's time for a break, so be right back to resume the discussion about Season 2 beginning with Episode 9, Dichotic. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. <laughs> One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am. Or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. Okay, I'm back now talking about Smallville Season 2, beginning with Episode 9, Dichotic. The show starts off with a, with a kind of clever nod to Clark's future as his shop teacher holds a stylized metal S directly in front of Clark's chest. 
Now, Cheesy is in the eye of the beholder. At this point in Smallville's run, there were very few visual connections to the Superman mythos, so little embellishments like that were welcome, rare, and fun. I just love them. I love them so much. But I guess apart from that, the big bad of this episode is Ian, played by none other than Jonathan Taylor Thomas. At the time, it was hard to take him seriously as a real threat to anything or anybody. Partly, it's because Jonathan Taylor Thomas is who we're talking about here, and partly it's because his superpower is duplicating himself. Now, I think one big lesson learned from Nocturne is that if viewers don't like the actor playing the mutant of the week they probably won't like the episode. And I think that applies here. Uh, What does ring true, though, of all things, is Chloe and Lana's infatuation with Ian. And it's, it's probably less to do with Ian himself and more to do with the fact that they're both trying to get Clark's attention. For different reasons, yeah, but they're both still trying to get Clark's attention, and that's the point. Remember what I said last time that each episode of Smallville always has at least two or three redeeming qualities? Well, this episode's no exception as we're introduced to Dr. Helen Bryce. First, she patches up Jonathan's bum leg after a tractor falls on it. And second, she flirts with Lex during their uh, anger management class. Helen Bryce is going to be an a very important character this season, but it's interesting that she was later written to be a little softer and more demure. Here, she's pretty much tough as nails and in your face. Not, and and, and I don't mean that in that obnoxious girl power kind of way, but close, very close, but not quite. Anyway, deeper themes and implications. The obvious idea here is that the characters are all struggling with finding a balance between all of their responsibilities. It's, it's just it's a facet of life that everybody struggles with in this episode. Had Martha been on the farm, she could have helped Jonathan with the tractor repairs and he wouldn't have gotten injured. But... She's been stuck trying to coordinate her farm chores with her Luthercorp job. Chloe's basically checked out all the best reference books from the library as she deals with meteor freaks week in and and week out. Lana's struggling with, with running the Talon, doing her homework, and fitting in commercials for Neutrogena. Even Lex, Lex's workload is getting to him because he takes a nine iron to a meter maid's little go-kart looking plastic and metal fucker. And of course, the best representation of this theme of finding a balance with all of your responsibilities is Ian himself, who, even though he can split himself into two copies, he's still struggling to get all of his work done to meet the impossible goals he set for himself. Clark's suspicions about Ian aren't completely logical, but 
it works into the Clark, Lana, Chloe love triangle, so I'm going to let it slide this time. Besides, Clark does have some reasonable basis to question Ian's motives and keep an eye on him. You can't say that about mm, other would-be boyfriends that Clark is suspicious of, so maybe we should count our blessings here, is what I'm saying. Anyway, Clark, Chloe, and Lana's final discussion with each other in the Talon is interesting on a lot of levels. First, this is the first time that Clark has ever given Lana and Chloe a sort of define-the-relationship kind of talk. He specifically says he doesn't want to be viewed by either of them as a jealous boyfriend. No, Clark wants to be treated as their friend. And guys, this has never happened before. Clark has never been this direct with either of them. The other thing, though, is if you pay attention to what to the dialogue and everything that's said, the final discussion that Clark, Chloe, and Lana all have together, it doesn't resolve anything. Nothing is decided in, the, in their little conversation. Nobody really apologizes for their actions. Now, they apologize for how they've treated Clark lately in general, but they don't apologize for anything specifically in this episode. No. In fact, they argue they made mistakes, but those were their mistakes to make. They're very defensive about their actions in this episode. So, still, Clark's main point is that he'll always be there to protect them. Even so, when credits roll for this episode, jack shit has been resolved. And I don't mean that in a critical way either. I mean, I guess I mean it from the aspect that all three characters have their own point of view. Each one of them chooses to stand by their point of view. And holy fucking shit, look how long I've spent talking about an episode that I would have told you 20 years or however long I've been talking about this thing. 15 minutes ago, that I don't even like all that much. So, there you have it. 10 minutes, or whatever it's been. Anyway, moving on. So, episode 10, Skinwalker. Boy meets girl. Boy and girl fall in love. Boy finds out girl's a fucking werewolf. Hilarity ensues. I gotta say, this episode isn't anywhere near as worthless as I remembered. I'll come back to this in a minute, though, but for right now, let me say that the A-plot centers on Clark more or less hooking up with Kyla Willowbrook, the aforementioned werewolf chick and member of the local Indian reservation. I gotta say, these types of stories tend to be a little cliche and formulaic. Namely, the hero meets a Native American tribe, he bonds with a couple of members, gets to know them and understand their customs, usually in reference to how barbaric the white man's practices are by comparison, and then parts ways with them being a better man for it, even though he never fucking mentions them again. This episode breaks the formula, at least a little bit, in that Clark makes a real connection to, to Kyla and the Kowachi legacy, and all of this stuff lasts a hell of a long time, and not incidentally suggests a hell of a lot about goings-on in Smallville 
long before Clark's ship ever arrived. Big doings, in other words. In particular, this episode sets up the myth of Naman and Sagith. Now, I've got a half-baked theory about this, which I'll expand upon in future episodes, but remember I mentioned this. It's Chekhov's gun. This is going somewhere. Now, the Kowachi Caves. I like how Clark literally fell ass-backwards into finding them. He and Pete are riding around on dirt bites through, through the forest, and they're just hanging out. Again, a TV show has to tell a story. So you can't have millions of scenes like this, but they're always welcome when they come. Toward the end of the episode, Lana swings by the loft to offer her condolences since Kyla's all dead now and everything, and she mentions that Whitney's missing in action. Again, Chekhov's gun. This too is going somewhere. Basically, Skinwalkers, it, this episode isn't memorable so much for what it is as for what it sets up. An entire world of Smallville mythos has just been explained, established, hinted at, or else set up for development in subsequent episodes and seasons. A shitload of stuff begins happening right fucking here. So, episode 11, Visage. Whitney's back. Except, it isn't Whitney. It's Tina Greer in disguise. She's in love with Lana, and she's going to do whatever she has to do to be with her. And you have to admit, that's a big step up from wanting to kill her. Again, I dig the way the episode starts with Clark and Lana trying to fix a plumbing issue at the town. I like the song playing in the background because it at least fits how the writers and characters see Lana, if not quite how we viewers see Lana. It's from a band called Walkabout, and the song is called Little Bit Strange. Yeah, it's pop stuff and everything, but it really works for the scene. Shut up, don't judge me, you know how punk rock I am. Anarchy in the UK, motherfucker! So anyway... <clears throat> But I also like Clark and Lana just hanging out, you know? It's pretty obvious that Lana somewhat has the hots for Clark, and he can say anything he wants about being just friends like he did in Dichotic, but he is, or would be, receptive to her. Which makes it a real pisser when Tina shows up impersonating Whitney just so she can get into Lana's pants. Clark feels sidelined with Lana, with Lana now that Whitney at least seems to be back, and honestly, Jonathan isn't having any of it. He pretty much busts Clark's balls all about it. Lex is having girl problems too, though. Helen's all in a snit just because Lex accused her of colluding with Lionel, just to get inside information on LexCorp. Lex found this out when his private investigator provided him with some pictures. I mean, honestly, why would Helen have been upset about that, you know? Yes, I'm kidding. But whatevs, Lex and Helen figure it all out before the credits roll. Pointless trivia here, but 
Tina's the first meteor freak to come back for an encore. The first, but not the last. Deeper themes and implications. Remember in Dichotic when Clark, Chloe, and Lana had a define the relationship conversation where Clark said first, he's their friend, and second, he'll always be there to protect them? Both of those hit home for Lana this episode when she swings by the caves and pretty much loses her shit over everything that's happened lately. And she then realizes that Clark has always been there for her, always had her back, and she's really not been all that good to him. And so she apologizes for being such a heinous, frigid bitch through this whole thing, and Clark tries to comfort her and and tell her that she hasn't been a bad friend at all, but she said she questioned and doubted Clark, really, for no reason. And, guys, it's fucking true. Clark brought up fairly reasonable suspicions that he had about Ian back in Dichotic. At the time, Lana completely ignored him. And in Visage, Lana busted Clark's balls when he said that Tina, pretending to be Whitney, was the one that tore up the bathroom at the Talon. In both of those instances, and this, this is the point, both of those instances, Lana didn't even give Clark a chance to give his side of the story, much less give him the benefit of the doubt. This had become one of the very rare times when Lana did wrong, admitted to it, and apologized for her actions. Enjoy it, people, because this ain't gonna last. Anyway, the song in the background during uh, Lana's tearjerker apology is Mad World by Gary Jules. Now, keep in mind, I saw this episode before I saw Donnie Darko, so I didn't, I didn't have that association with it at the time, so... On that basis, I thought the song was used masterfully. Still do, in fact. Another thing is that when Clark and Tina had their final showdown, Tina assumes Clark's form. There's probably some psychological bullshit there. She could have become anybody. But she chose Clark. Honestly... I think assuming Whitney's form so that she and Clark could beat the piss out of each other might have been good for both of them, but obviously that wasn't my call. Another thing, there was a point when Tina briefly had Clark pinned to the, uh, pinned to the ground. To free himself, Clark could have done basically anything, but he headbutted Tina to get her off him. Now, usually, Clark doesn't risk hitting people, whether they have superpowers or not. This is the first time that I can think of where Clark trusts himself enough to risk hitting somebody, rather than giving them the old super shove. And it works, too. And lest you think that this is an isolated incident, just a few seconds later, Clark kicks Tina across the alley. In fact, you know what? Now that I think about it, all around... This seems like one of the more pitched battles that Clark's ever had with a supervillain during the entire run of this show. Now, yes, he's still perfecting his moves, 
but he handled himself a lot better this time than he did for most of the first season. He's getting better at this. He's still not as effective as Superman's going to be someday, but you can't say that he's not getting better at this. Also, Tina kills somebody in this episode. She beats him to death with a baseball bat. Her victim isn't cannon fodder, and this murder doesn't get just swept under the rug. It comes back in a big bad way later on. Speaking of shit that doesn't get swept under the rug, Clark's ship neutralizes the kryptonite in Lana's necklace. Guys, this isn't just a plot convenience. That little moment is going somewhere. Something big comes out of that. Anyway. Finally, and I'm not sure if this counts for deeper themes and implications, but... Have any of you noticed that Tina Greer doesn't seem to have a ribcage? Insurgents, episode 12. This is the diehard episode of Smallville. Thieves take Lionel and Martha hostage in the Luther Corp Tower. Now, remember a couple episodes back I mentioned that Lionel temporarily moving into the Luther Mansion in Smallville would pay off? Well, here's your payoff, Jack. While Lionel stayed in the mansion, his team planted listening devices all over the place so that Luther Corp could spy on all of LexCorp's dealings. This episode pays all that off. Apart from that, Jonathan makes a reference to his and Martha's last anniversary when Clark threw this big, raucous party. That was last season, in Jitters. Also, Martha hides the key from Clark and Jonathan, the key to to Clark's ship, that octagonal disc. Martha hides it from Clark and Jonathan, and the reason for that won't be addressed for a, a couple of more episodes yet. Now, I mention those things to say that a lot of haters bitch and complain about the lack of continuity and how stories just appear out of nowhere. The stuff I just mentioned make me wonder what the fuck those people are even talking about. So, so anyway. Now, one of the big things that people remember about this episode is Clark leaping from the Daily Planet rooftop into the Luther Corp building. And it's a very cool moment. Speaking of which, this is the first time the Daily Planet has appeared anywhere in Smallville. It's also the first appearance of Maggie Sawyer, and if I'm not mistaken, I think she pops up at least a couple of more times during the show's run, but this is the first time we see her. This episode is where I officially turned on Lana. I officially turned my back. It all started here. Mrs. Small has a very direct and very fucking creepy discussion with Lana about Henry Small. The way Mrs. Small tells it, you'd think Lana and Henry are having some kind of sick, twisted, incestuous love affair or something. And not only that, Mrs. Small talks to Lana as an equal. You could point Mrs. Small's dialogue at any adult woman who's ever been on the show without 
without changing a thing. But here's the issue. This is not how adults talk to teenagers, period, end of discussion. Grown-ups do not speak to teenagers this way. I mean, it's just creepy weird. And on top of that, Lana makes no effort to stand up for herself whatsoever. She just plays the victim and lets Mrs. Small walk all over her. So, by the time the scene's over, I have no respect for Mrs. Small and really no sympathy for Lana. But we never see Mrs. Small... Well, we only see... I don't, no, I don't think it's that we never see Mrs. Small again. We're just... We, we don't see her much more. So, all we're really left with is Lana's never-ending self-pity, whining, self-loathing, complaining, and self-victimization, her martyrdom... You know, it's just all this bullshit. It's, it's just fucking sick, is really what it comes down to. Their scene in the Talon, Mrs. Small and Lana, their scene in the Talon, just makes me fucking uncomfortable to watch it. In my opinion, this is the moment when the show traded Lana as the kind of annoying kind of cipher non-character that she'd always been up to this point in exchange for the perfect pretty pink princess that almost fucking ruined this show. But anyway, deeper themes and implications. This episode takes place on Martha and Jonathan's anniversary, just like Jitters did from uh, season one. And just like Jitters, a Luther Corp facility is taken over and one member from the Kent family and Luther family are held hostage inside. As with Jitters, Lex holds himself responsible, and so he makes every effort to fix the situation. After Clark has saved the day, in both Jitters and here, and and Insurgents, both in Jitters and in Insurgents, both families... Well, first, Clark saves the day, then both families are reunited, during which time Lex is criticized by Lionel. The media are all there. News media are all there to take uh, pictures and everything of, uh, of what's happened. And then Lex stares in open envy... at the, uh, at the Kent family's love, affection, solidarity... That happens both here and in Jitters. Now, the point, the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because the parallels between Jitters and Insurgents are too numerous for me to think that it's all just one big coincidence. Sometimes writers get lucky when they do anything creative. I realize that. But there's way too much shit between Jitters and Insurgents to make me believe that this was all just luck. I don't care what anybody says. Insurgents is meant to be a follow-up to Jitters. The similarities have got to be intentional. The moment in Insurgents where Lex watches the Kents has a different emotional pull to it this time, though, because when he did it in Jitters, you get the sense he's striving for that kind of bond with Lionel. And sure, he gets hugged by Lionel and Jitters, but it's all just a photo op. Lex wants it to be real, and tried like hell to make it real. In Insurgents, that's gone. Lionel doesn't even pretend to hug him and tearfully reunite for the cameras. None of that shit. Lex knows any chance of truly being a family is gone. And 
the truth is, it's been gone for a long time now. But it's only in this episode that Lex realizes that he and Lionel will never truly be family to each other. So when he watches the Kents, when Lex watches the Kents and Insurgents, it's more than just envy. He now recognizes that kind of bond, that sort of familial bond, as something that he's never going to have. Rather than envy, this is covetousness, I guess is, is maybe the best way to put it. And <clears throat> as Lex bitterly watches the Kents, the SR-71 song Tomorrow plays in the background. Again, this works for Lex in terms of, in terms of character and theme, as he truly is only afraid of himself and what he might become. He's afraid of his own soul sometimes. And he should be. There's no hope to ever be family. And he realizes that now. That's one less reason that Lex has now to choose a different path than the one we know he's going to choose in the end. And people, that's some dark shit. Now, this episode was co-written by Jeff Loeb. And... I've made my opinion about Jeff Loeb as a writer known in previous episodes, but I mention his name here first. <clears throat> Again, give credit where credit's due, as apparently this episode was mostly his brainchild. And second, I guess I kind of put things in perspective by pointing out that he receives a writer's credit on only four episodes of the series. Red and Insurgents during season two, Legacy from uh, the third season and Unsafe from the dreaded fourth season. Of those four episodes, Insurgents and Unsafe <clears throat> uh, Insurgents and Unsafe are credited to co-writers. And of those four, two rely heavily on Red Kryptonite to drive the plot. You can do anything you want with that information. Oh, one other thing. Lionel was blind when he fired the gun toward the end of the episode. I'll develop this more later on. I don't want to spoil ahead too much, just keep in mind, Lionel was blind when he fired that bullet. So, so anyway... I think that about does it this time. I'm going to take a quick break and be right back after these messages. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones? Whoa, those things. 
Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage, I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world, and when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. 
Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from, from Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. bit of feedback here that I need to go through, so uh, first things first, this is an email that comes through from my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime. It's an email sent on July the 29th. The subject line is The Big 50, and Fanboy Miss Prime writes, Greetings, Magnus. And I must say, fuck you, David Goyer. Even months after his speaking like he was Galactus's asshole to the public on She-Hulk and Martian Manhunter. I feel like that should be expressed. And let me just put this email on pause and say, this was obviously sent a very long time ago, and I'm on, and I'm obviously I'm only just now getting to it. But to refresh everybody's memory, basically what happened was David Goyer. He was at some con, I forget which one, but he took it upon himself basically to smack talk both She-Hulk and Martian Manhunter. I guess he has something against green characters. I don't know. But anyway. And so he he basically called She-Hulk a porn star. And Martian Manhunter, he said that anybody who even knows who that is has probably never gotten laid before. And so, of course, fandom at large was, well, a little bit unhappy about the fact that he said that. And so I'm guessing... Fanboy Miss Prime is one such. He's just not very happy at all that Goyer shot his mouth off like that. And on that basis, I have to agree with him. David Goyer really did come off like a, like a totally pompous dick during that, that whole thing. And as far as I know, he hasn't apologized or done anything uh, about this. He basically just let his comments stand. So I have to concur with you, Prime. Fuck you, David Goyer. But to get back into Prime's email, he writes... And here's to hoping that doesn't become awkward. I'm putting the email back on pause to say, well, dude, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> uh, past couple minutes seemed awkward to you. I don't know. Get back in the email, though. Prime writes. Anyway, on to Starman. I need to read more of that series, to be honest. Putting the email back on pause to say, you know what, uh, dude, I try not to be one of those people who, you know, reads a comic book and then, you know, becomes an... I don't know, just kind of a pain in the ass about it. Oh man, you've got to read this. This comic book is the greatest fucking thing ever. It's going to change your life. I, I hate, I hate, fucking hate when people tell me that. Because invariably, they, they can never just say it and then just leave it at that. They've always got to ride your balls about it. And I kind of, I realize this isn't specifically about comics, but I kind of lump Doctor Who fans in that same category where it's not enough that they like it you have to like it too and if you don't like it well i guess you're some kind of a knuckle dragging mouth breathing cave dwelling philistine for not liking this the most awesome tv show there's ever been in the history of awesome ever you know it's just i just get sick, sick and fucking tired of hearing about it to be perfectly blunt with you and so you know what and, and the hell of it is i'm actually sure that doctor who is a good show 
a lot of people seem to like it. And it, I'm almost tempted to say that, you know, it, can it really be that bad if so many millions of people like it? But then I remember the fact that, well, there was a time, I don't know so much about now, but there was a time when Britney Spears sold millions of CDs. So what do I know? Anyway, point is, you know, I don't want to be one of, I, I basically, I don't want to come off like a Doctor Who fan whenever I recommend Starman or, or whatever else, really. But, you know, at the same time, this is one of the few comic book series that really does live up to the hype. Like J. David Weider said back in episode number 50, it... Starman... Basically, James Robinson really had his eye on the prize. He, w he was playing the long game with Starman, and so little things that... Uh, are, are introduced in the beginning get way, way, way developed and then resolved by the end of the series. And to this day, it's one of the few truly immaculate titles that you can read that somebody hasn't eventually come back to later on and totally fucked up. And I think a good example of what I'm talking about here is Watchmen. Number one, Watchmen didn't really need any kind of prequels or any kind of stupidity like that. As a matter of fact, I'd go so far as to say that's actually been the majority of Watchmen's uh, appeal to critics and the snooterati fucking New York Times bookseller hipster elite. You know, those people. I think that's the main reason that they like Watchmen, because everything you need to know about Watchmen is contained uh, from, uh, from page one of Watchmen number one, and then gets resolved by the final page of Watchmen number 12. Everything you need to know about Watchmen is contained right there. And my contention is this. Had, had Alan Moore been able to use the Charlton characters for Watchmen rather than having to create uh, his own original character, well, mostly kind of original characters, my view is that Watchmen... It would have came and gone, or rather, it would have come and gone, and I truly believe nobody would have given a damn. And, or maybe not that so much. I think people would have liked it, but I don't think it would have reached the heights that it's at, uh, that, that it's up to right now. I just don't buy it, all right? I think the whole thing that makes Watchmen work among civilians and, you know, the, uh, like I said, the snooterati, uh, I don't know, New York Times crowd is the fact that it doesn't require any kind of knowledge of continuity and it doesn't it basically gives you everything you need to know in a completely self-contained story and doesn't rely on you having read last month's issue in order to enjoy this story that's starting right here because there is no there is no history to Watchmen of which you need to be aware and there's really no aftermath of which you need to be aware the beginning, middle, and end of that story is all in those 12 issues. And, like I said, as far as Immaculate Works are concerned, I still want to say that Watchmen's part of that, even though technically it now isn't, but it's just in my personal Watchmen canon. There's Watchmen number 1 to 12, and that's it. And you don't have to play sort of um, imaginary games like that with Starman. Basically... Not quite everything, but most of everything that happens uh, happens to or affects Jack Knight happens in the main Starman series. Now, excuse me while I take a drink off my Dr. Pepper here. Mm. 
And um, as I say, basically it takes place in the main Starman series. And yeah, you've got that Shade uh, miniseries, and there's even that JSA miniseries that I guess it touches on Ted Knight and I guess the uh, the Opal City verse. But I don't know that JSA is absolutely essential reading for the main Starman series. In fact, come to that, I don't think the Shade miniseries is absolutely essential reading either, because I've never read the Shade miniseries. But I love Starman anyway. Anyway, so my point is that, you know, you say that you need to read more of that series, and fuck it, dude, I encourage it, man. You, I'm, I recommend uh, Starman to anybody. Right? Starman is what, to tie it all back, Starman is what the uh, New York Times book crowd think Watchmen is. Right? It's that good. And I know that a lot of people in podcast land, have, uh, they, they've all sung the praises of Starman and how awesome it is. And dude, listen to them. In this case, they really are you know, giving you good news on that one. That's good information. You can, you can rely on that. So, anyway... So that's that. Now to get back into you, uh, get back into Prime's email. He writes, "Harry Potter being called cohesive made me literally laugh." Oh wait, I think Dave was serious. Oh boy, let's just say I disagree with that series of books being called cohesive. To me, it's more plot device piled on top of plot device. And, oh, the fact that you got soul-sucking monsters roaming the United Kingdom freely and breeding in the seventh book, yet nothing happens because of that. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, I think I know what you're getting at here, but at the same time, when, when J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave, said that Harry Potter is cohesive, what I, at least what I took from that, was that he he recognized that J.K. Rowling, when she was writing those books, basically set up a series of rules and, by and large, abided by those rules. You know, she didn't... It was the rare moment when she, when she played fast and loose with the details, you know? So, when he said that it was uh, cohesive, what I took... I, here's a good example of what I mean, just to give you, just to give you an idea, right? In the third book, Prisoner of Azkaban, J.K. Rowling lays out rules for time travel, and then she pretty much abides by them. And I'm one of those people who think that you have to do time travel stories really carefully. And that's the type of time travel story that I like seeing take place, where basically everything is accounted for, all the bases are covered, and nothing is left to chance. You know, they don't go, basically, the main characters don't go back in time and change the course of events. They fulfill them. You know, there are things that happen in the main timeline that the characters, as they go through, they do themselves. And then when they go back in time, they handle other things that they didn't know they themselves were handling, right? So they're not going back in time to change things. They're going back in time to make those things happen. And that, to me, is is the hallmark of a good time travel story. So... And that's not to say that Harry Potter is a time travel story. I'm just saying that elements of the third book, Prisoner of Azkaban, have time travel elements to them. So, there you go. Another drink off my Dr. Pepper there. So, to get back into Prime's email, though, he writes, 
Next, we got Amazing Spider-Man number 50. At least this time, Spider-Man, when he quit, didn't try experimenting on himself and end up with four more arms. Plus, Kingpin's first appearance. I laughed at the reference to the Spider-Man movies. Good stuff. On 90s Image... Eh... Some of that's bad. I mean, really bad. Though Savage Dragon has aged decently, and not sure about what became of Wildstorm and how well that's aged, so I won't consider it all in, all one and the same, but yeah, Liefeld's projects earned the ire that they got. I'm going to put this email back on pause here and say, you know what, um, I honestly did not plan things out to go this way, as might be evident by the fact that we're still so far ahead of time, but basically what's going on is, unless something really, really radically changes, the feedback that I'm recording right now is set to come out with uh, the Smallville Season 2 Part 3 retrospective. And so it's still a few months off, but basically what's going to happen is, at least for right now, and who knows what can change in the future, but for right now, starting in November, I'm going to be going through a series called It's All About Image and basically tackle not, I mean, not really the first initial, like the initial offering of Image Comics, although that's going to be in there too, but basically Image Comics that either were really, really, you know, popular and well-known and all that stuff, or else Image Comics that I really enjoyed and I think have gotten a little bit of a bad rap, or worse yet, they've just been forgotten about altogether. And so that's really the uh, the purpose of all of this. And so, and also, I guess like the the larger point about about that little mini series. It's all about image starting in uh, in November is what I'm basically trying to do is find out is that stuff really as bad as people say or is fandom kind of having having a sort of I don't know a fandom hangover so to speak uh, about you know the 90s and just some of the really terrible decisions that we made uh, and about some really cheesy books you know is it that these books really sucked or is it maybe possible that we're just basically insecure with purchases that we all made back then, but we're trying to act like we didn't, you know? And so for me, I mean, I had I collected a, f- like a fairly minimal amount of image comics back in back in the '90s, and so primary. Well, fuck it. Um, basically, so I can just stop ta- talking around it. Um, the uh, the series called It's All About Image, like I said, that starts in uh, November of this year. At least that's the plan. And at least uh, the images, or rather the uh, comics, the image comics that I'm going to be talking about, again, it, this is the plan. Plans change, so who knows. But at least for right now, I'm going to be talking about Spawn, a few issues of Spawn, the first Shadowhawk miniseries, the first uh, Savage Dragon miniseries, the first, uh, I think the only Cyber Force miniseries. I can't believe if uh, I, I can't remember if there was another one or not. Uh, Pit, Young Blood, the first couple of issues of uh, the Max, Gen 13, the miniseries, and then Astro City. And so those are the uh, Image comics that I'm going to be talking about. And I, I, uh, I, I collected Spawn a fair amount way back in the day. 
And I think, you know, look, is that the greatest comic book that has ever been written? No, of course not. But I think it's, I think it's better than many of its critics want to admit. And so, you know, and that's probably going to be the attack that I take for uh, my discussion about Spawn, the first four issues of Spawn. As to Shadowhawk, I tried collecting that. It's just, it was one of those things that circumstances kind of foiled it for me. Well, actually, foil. I probably can't say that about 90s comics. Circumstances kind of ruined that for me. And so I wasn't able to follow Shadowhawk as closely as I might have wanted. But I'm going to have a little bit of an angle on uh, Shadowhawk that hopefully you guys are going to enjoy. But I didn't really avidly follow that. And then Gen 13, I, I did uh, follow that. Uh, I followed the ongoing title that uh, spun out of the miniseries. I never actually read the miniseries. I, it's just, it was not available. You can only get it uh, as single issues back then. I don't know if that miniseries has ever actually been collected in a trade paperback, but for damn sure, it was not available at the time. You just could not find that stuff. And, I, you know, my attitude about it was, I didn't want to get just one or two at a shot and then not be able to get the rest. If I was going to do this, I wanted to do it properly. And like I say, you know, circumstances just never really, never really allowed me to uh, check out the uh, Gen 13 miniseries. I'm actually kind of looking forward to that. Then there's the Max, which, again, I would have followed more closely. It's just circumstances got in the way, you know. For all of these, in case it wasn't obvious, these image comics that I was trying to collect, these were sort of my lowest priority. I was uh, a comic book collector, and I had... I can't even remember what my allowance was back in those days. It was like five, that was more than that. It was like 10 bucks a week or something like that. And that may seem like it's a lot, but when you consider the fact that I had to follow all of the Superman comics, all of the Batman comics, all of, um, you know, uh, let's see, Flash and Impulse, what few Marvel comics I was following, and then also... Um, what few image comics I was following, and I had to buy lunch on top of all of that. It was just really hard uh, to get all of this stuff uh, back then. So, you know, there you go. And um, that's that basically is uh, why I want to come back to this and do this um, this series called It's All About Image. Because I want to find out for myself how good, or for that matter, how bad, are these comics really? Because I've got some fond memories of some of these things, so I want to see how they hold up. And as for stuff like Youngblood, I want to find out just how bad that really is. Is it really as horrible as people say? Or are people basically making uh, fun of the stuff that they bought because they're unhappy, of the, unhappy with the fact that they bought it? So, I don't know. So, that's the whole point of, uh, of that miniseries, and uh, we'll just see how that goes. But anyway, uh, to get back into Prime's email, uh, he writes, Third up is Iron Man number 150. I remember uh, that one, and I got the trade that reprints that story in the first of the follow-ups. Oh, Doctor Doom and Morgana Le Fay. A match that goes sour and explosive. Doom getting his castle, uh, his castle trashed uh, by her from the past in which Norman Osborn's team of Avengers got caught up in that mess. Plus, we find out that they had a daughter together, one that the Fearless Defenders had to face in their series. Now we have Swamp Thing 50, which was one crazy issue, and I didn't realize it was the one where, they, uh, where the entity killed several images and blew Minto's brain. 
I really need to check that issue out. Next we got Tales of the Teen Titans number 50. The marriage of Donna Troy to Terry Long. A man who died along with his son down the line. And that still is less weird than the crap around the sun, which devolved into a pissing contest between Extant and the Time Trapper. And dude, I'm going to put your email on pause here and say, I have no fucking idea what you're talking about. The most I can come up with, was this like a zero hour thing or something? Because I'm totally blanking on what you're talking about here. So I don't know. But anyway, to get back into it, though. Anyway, this wedding goes without someone showing up to kick everyone's ass or blow it up, or an alien invasion showing up to trash the place, and unlike Dick and Corey's wedding, where Raven showed up insane and the preacher exploded, yeah, that wasn't one of Marv Wolfman's better days when that happened. Sorry it took, for, uh, it took a while for me to get this email finished, but here it is. And uh, that's the end of the email, so uh, let me just say, dude... You know, don't even worry about it. You know, don't worry about how long it took uh, took for you to get this email to me. Because obviously, I'm pretty behind on feedback as it is. So, you know, there's really no timeline for this stuff. So, um, and also, thank you for the email. Because there's a lot of food for thought here. And like I said, I, I truly don't know what you're talking about um, with uh, Donna Troy and Terry Long's son. And whatever drama was going on over him between Extant and the Time Trapper. I guess I could Google that, but, dude, I'll be honest with you, I have no fucking idea what this was all about, so um, let me know, because I have no idea. So, let's see, we've been going here for about 20-ish minutes, I think, so is that, in fact, enough to... Nah, you know what, I, there's more There's more feedback to go through, but I don't, I don't know, 20 or so minutes of feedback, that's enough, isn't it? That's enough. And so, um, anyway, but I just want to thank, uh, I want to thank Fanboy Miss Prime for taking the time to uh, write into me like this. And, and like I said, dude, don't worry about the fact that it's supposedly late. You know, that, that bothers me not at all. So, if it doesn't bother me, it shouldn't bother you either. So, anyway, so I think that's basically it. So, uh, for right now, let's see, next week I'm going to be talking about Ultimate Spider-Man, number one through seven. The storyline, the title of that, is uh, Power and Responsibility, so I'm going to be talking about that next week, so got that coming up. So anyway, so I think that's basically it for me this week, so bye everybody, I'll see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode 
with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Thank you.